Well, g'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer. Now, today on the program... Und für seine Herrlichkeit, jetzt und immer, Deutschland, Sieg ein! Hitler, who brought about more deaths and destruction than anyone in human history, apart from Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. Now, to mark the 75th anniversary of his suicide, we chat with one of the latest biographers of the Nazi dictator. We'll find out how America became Hitler's lifelong obsession, an obsession that led to the creation of the Third Reich, then Auschwitz, and World War II. Stay with us for my conversation with Professor Brendan Sims. But first, few prime ministers have been so traduced as Malcolm Turnbull. So it's no surprise that the former Prime Minister should seek to write his memoirs and try to justify his record as Prime Minister. So, are his swings at former colleagues justified? And what's his legacy? How will history judge his record as our nation's 29th Prime Minister? Well, let's hear two views. Jacqueline Maley is a columnist at the Sydney Morning Herald, and Jennifer Oriel is a columnist at The Australian. Ladies, welcome to Between the Lines. Thanks, Hi, Tom. Tom. Now, since leaving Parliament and in his memoirs, Turnbull has attacked many former Liberal colleagues. Uh, they've generally refrained from returning fire, but Tony Abbott's former Chief of Staff, Peter Credlin, has hit back, calling Turnbull, quote, absolutely lacking in character. Uh, Jacqueline Maley, who's right here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure um, that, that, a, that a blood feud is sort of ancient and, and, and deep as this one is not going to be adjudicated by the likes of me. I do think it's interesting that Peter Credlin is sort of the only non-politician or non-publicly elected official who is in the, the memoir or the autobiography as prominently as, um, as Peter Credlin is and who is still sort of in a position where she's returning fire and able to defend herself. So I, I just think that's interesting. That, that that feud and her centrality to the Abbott government, which was extremely controversial at the time and, you know, obviously still is. Yes, I mean, he's also said that she was running the country apparently during his memoirs uh, during the Abbott years and uh, she says that this is uh, these are highly personal attacks, they're unedifying. Uh, Jennifer Oriel, what do you make of all this? Uh, look, I think uh, Jacqueline's right in that journalists aren't in a position to judge anyone's characters uh, or, or souls or anything like that. Um, but um, we can certainly see, I think, that there, there are problems with Turnbull's treatment of Credlin in his book. Um, and more generally, one of the one of the things is that he's really buying into pretty sexist, I think, um, depictions of Credlin. You know, he said on the 7th Thursday with, um, with Lee Sales that she that she dominated uh, Abbott. He worshipped and feared her. She treated him with disdain. And then he goes into speculating about her inner feelings, um, as though she felt, "I've created you. You're my creation." She felt she owned him. I mean, it's it's really bizarre. But it's also gossip of the lowest order. If he doesn't have anything, I mean, one thing you can say about Credlin is that she's highly intelligent. Uh, and and is very good at policy policy making and knows parliamentary pr procedure and politics inside out. So, if he wants to attack her, he should do something other than resorting to to really personal slurs and insults. And following on from Jennifer Jacqueline, I mean, all of this is in the context about 
of, of Turnbull's complaint that his colleagues betrayed him in an act of madness in August 2018. But didn't Turnbull do the same thing to Tony Abbott in 2015, or is it more complicated? No, I mean, on, on the face of it, no. I mean, this is the thing about politics, and this is the thing, this is the reason why we get so cross about politicians sort of complaining. In the moral universe that Turnbull inhabited, he was wronged against, and he also wronged other people. And, you know, I think Frank Kelly asked him on the on the radio the other day because he was talking very movingly and very powerfully about his own depression after the UK affair and after he was ousted from the Liberal Party leadership by Tony Abbott in 2009. Um, and she said to him, you know, well, didn't didn't you think about that depression and didn't you think about the effect that that had on you when you did it again to him, you know, <laughs> a few years later? Um, and he sort of, he, he, did, he did dodge the question. I mean, I, I have no doubt that the, the wound was very deep um, both to his ego and to his pride, but also his feelings because he obviously felt so betrayed. One of the things that I find sort of so amazing about these political stouters, um, even years after the fact, is the raw emotion that is obviously still there. And these are all men who are running the country in, you know, a supposedly rational and unemotional manner. You're on RN with me, Tom Switzer, and my guests Jacqueline Maley from the Sydney Morning Herald and Jennifer Oriel from The Australian. And we're talking about the Turnbull memoirs. Now, Malcolm Turnbull's book is titled A Bigger Picture. And it's clear that the reader is meant to think that he stood tall and beyond the, the relentless 24-7 news cycle. Uh, Jennifer Oriel, did Turnbull put into practice the small L liberal visions that he had espoused, uh, which perhaps explains the conservative animosity that uh, Turnbull has generated. Well, I think on the on the small L liberal or, or what Turnbull called the progressive side of his politics, he achieved he followed through with the plebiscite for gay marriage uh, and same sex marriage, and that was important. He had a democratic mandate to do that, and that was reflected later in the in the vote in the plebiscite. So that that was an important part of his legacy, um, and he tried to deliver a climate policy, um, but in the end was rolled by going to pitching too far left for the party. Uh, so I think he he had a lot of problems sort of delivering beyond that. He was once described by the Liberal veteran Richard Alston as a political interloper who, who was chasing the ultimate trophy but had very few political convictions. Um, and people noted noted that about him um, in, on several occasions, but it became very obvious in the lead up to to the election when he was branding uh, himself on posters as Turnbull for Wentworth, there was no mention of the Liberal Party. So that kind of disregard for people who have worked very hard to to uh, towards your success is, is a problem for him and it seems to be a fairly consistent one in his history. Yeah, Jacqueline, I was um, quite struck when I read the Sydney Morning Herald's letters page on Monday. There were a lot of letters from people who generally sympathised with Turnbull, but they felt that he had betrayed them, that he didn't put into place his small L liberal agenda. Is it fair to just blame the right-wing terrorists in the party, as Turnbull does? Uh, look, I, I think um, certainly when it came to his climate policy, his, his second attempt at climate policy with the National Energy Guarantee, you know, it was a reasonably good policy. It was certainly the best compromise that we had at the time or have had since. It had the support of the majority of the party room. It had the support of Cabinet. But it was withdrawn as policy by, by Turnbull and Josh Frydenberg, of course, who was running it at the time, because um, they knew that um, there was a small 
small, you know, the, the hard hard right sort of rump that was going to blow up the government over it and was going to blow up Turnbull's leadership over it. Um, and as it transpired, of course, they did that anyway. But, but we'll just put um, this in some so, kind of historical context. I'm, I'm struck here mm. because if you look at a lot of leaders in history, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, he stood up to Southern Democrats when he legislated civil rights. Hawke and Keating, of course, they stood up to the Labor unions when they deregulated the economy. Howard stood up to the gun enthusiasts in the National Party after Port Arthur. Why did Malcolm Turnbull have such a difficult time convincing his base about what he thought was sound policy? Well, I think this is where you see the sort of massive puncturing in his popularity because people, um, you know, like the letters the letters um, writers of the Sydney Morning Herald, thought that he should have and, and thought that someone of his stature, someone who held himself out to be the sort of strong moral character that he was, um, a man of conviction, should have should have stared them down and should have, um, you know, rooted out the terrorists and, and routed them. And he wasn't able to, I think, in no small part because um, of the way he came to the leadership, but also, of course, the election result that he had after he ousted Tony Abbott from the leadership. Um, from the prime ministership, so you know, it, yeah. So I think, as Jennifer wrote in her column the other day, he he lost fourteen seats for the Liberal Party in that election. It was a pretty shocking result. He he um, gave a very you know famously sort of graceless speech mm. um, on uh, on election night. And I think if he'd won a resounding victory like Tony Abbott did, he would have had a little bit more leverage and a little bit more power within within the party room. Well, Jennifer Turnbull says the coalition, after having toppled him as leader, it deserved to lose last. May's election. How do you think Morrison triumphed last May by winning seats in northern Tasmania, I think of Bass and Braddon, Western Sydney, Lindsay, across Queensland, Herbert in the north, Longman in the south. These are the very seats, by the way, that Turnbull lost in 2016 when he nearly lost government, as Jacqueline just pointed out. Why did Morrison succeed in these areas why Turnbull failed spectacularly? Well, Morrison pitched to what he called the quiet Australians. He uh, spoke against um, sort of positions on political correctness that everyone was fed up with. He was portrayed as honest and pragmatic. Uh, he got cuts through his communication. Turnbull really was lost not because of some sort of conspiracy of a hard right in his party, uh, but because he insisted on promoting the idea that the national en energy guarantee should be coupled to the Paris target. For people in the in the Liberal coalition, that was uh, problematic because it meant it would be legislated uh, and they wouldn't have any way to decouple it from uh, internationalist targets, uh, even if it threatened sovereign energy supply and so forth. So that's why it happened. It wasn't really because there was a right-wing conspiracy. Um, and in the week before he was toppled, he sort of displayed that arrogance for which he's now renowned and refused to listen to that to the backbench until it was too late. Morrison was different in that he, he had a, a pragmatic appeal, he vowed to work with people, and he had a sense of, of being genuine. Um, he was a good fit for the party and he spoke in a way that made sense because he has such a long history with it. Mm. Uh, and he didn't promise what he couldn't deliver. He wasn't into big motherhood statements. He was talking about very small, concrete policies that they would that the party would deliver on under his leadership. And that was really very different to Turnbull and, and in some respects ever before him. Okay, finally, ladies, history. How will history view Turnbull, his legacy? When I think of Kevin Rudd, he claims that he saved Australia from the global financial crisis. 
Julia Gillard will always be remembered as our first female Prime Minister who, who legislated uh, consequential policy, but whether you like it or not, Gonski, NBN, NDIS. Tony Abbott, of course, won a landslide election on par with Bob Hawkes in 1983. He stopped the boats. Jacqueline, how will history remember Turnbull? Um, look, he had a very short Prime Ministership. It was only three three years, um, only slightly, slightly, I think a day or two more than Whitlam's Prime Ministership, but you can say that his um, reform agenda was somewhat somewhat less grand. Uh, look, he legislated tax cuts. I think probably the, the thing that he will most be remembered for is legalising uh, same-sex marriage. Even though that wasn't his policy, he did carry it through. It was extremely controversial. He got it done. He, as, you know, communications minister, he actually sort of instituted the NBN. He did he did budget repair and he did improve budget confidence. I mean, uh, business confidence and economic confidence. Turnbull's legacy, Jennifer Oriel. Well, I don't think Malcolm Turnbull will be remembered for great statecraft. Uh, he probably will be remembered for being Prime Minister who oversaw uh, the legalisation of same-sex marriage in Australia. Um, he will be remembered for his work on the Paris target uh, and the NEG. But beyond that, I don't think he will be remembered in favourable terms. And no one is doing more damage to Malcolm Turnbull's political legacy than Malcolm Turnbull himself. And it's worth noting that other former federal Liberal leaders, I think of John Gorton in the 70s, Malcolm Fraser in the 80s and 90s, John Hewson, of course, after he lost the unlosable election to Paul Keating, they went on to criticise the Liberal Party, especially the Conservatives in the party, for years after they led their party. So perhaps Malcolm Turnbull is following a tradition here. Jacqueline, <laughs> Jennifer, thanks so much for being on ABC Radio today. Thanks, thanks for having me, Tom. Jacqueline Maley is a columnist at the Sydney Morning Herald and Jennifer Oriel is a columnist with the Australian. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, do we really need another book about Adolf Hitler? After all, around 128,000 books have already been written on Hitler. 128,000. It's extraordinary, isn't it? So is it time to move on? <laughs> well, the answer is that if the book casts new light on one of the vilest men in history, then it's certainly worth reviewing. Besides, the world being what it is, we still need reminders of how fanaticism can descend into madness and, of course, a world war. Now, as it happens, April 30 marks the 75th anniversary of Hitler's suicide in the ruins of Berlin. This is London calling. Here is a news flash. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. One of the more recent accounts of Hitler's life is by the British historian Brendan Sims. He's a fellow at the Pepperhouse College, Cambridge, and he's author of several books on European history. The book is called Hitler. Only the World Was Enough. It's published by Alan Lane. Professor Brendan Sims, welcome to ABC Radio. Thanks for having me on. Now, the prevailing wisdom among other leading biographers is that Hitler's principal preoccupation throughout his career was the Soviet Union and Bolshevism. You have a different interpretation. Do tell us. Well, my argument is that his main concern was with Anglo-America and international capitalism. And I say this uh, for many reasons. First of all, uh, his very first major political statement in 1919, attacking the Jews, is entirely concerned with capitalism. It doesn't even mention Bolshevism and the Russian Revolution. Uh, his final statement in 1945, his last will and testament, doesn't actually mention uh, the Bolsheviks either, but does mention uh, strongly international capitalism. And this is not actually surprising, because his main uh, 
confrontation prior to 1919 and the First World War was with Anglo-America and with capitalism as he saw it. So your line is that throughout his career, Hitler's rhetoric was, I think you've used these words in your book, far more anti-capitalist than anti-communist. Yes, and it's important here to stress that he's anti-international capitalist. He has a, a softer spot for what he calls national capitalism, that is to say, local or, or, or national companies like, say, Krupp or Thyssen, who, who make armaments or cars or whatever. Um, and the reason why he's so strongly opposed to, um, to international capitalism is that he sees the Germans as being what he calls a colonized people. And it's a very strong element in this thinking in the 1920s. And then in the 1930s and 40s, he talks about the Germans as being among the global have-nots, like the Italians or the Japanese, as he sees them, people who have been cut out of uh, the riches of the world by the powers of international communism, particularly uh, the United States and the British Empire. Is that why the Nazi Party originally was called National Socialist Party? Right, so it's not obviously called the National Capitalist Party, to make a, to make a point. Uh, he actually saw nationalism and socialism basically as the same thing, uh, and therefore the national community needed to share everything, uh, and it was under threat, as he saw it, from the forces of international capitalism. So it's no accident, uh, indeed, uh, that his party was called the National Socialist Party. Okay, now we should stress that the overwhelming consensus of major scholarship on Hitler, I think of Alan Bullock in the mid-1950s, Joachim Fest in the mid-1970s, Ian Kershaw, the great British historian in the 1990s, and more recently, uh, Peter Longerich and Volker Ulrich, they more or less stressed that Hitler was more preoccupied by the rise of Bolshevism and the development of the Soviet Union. Now, your critics would say that the, the Nazi stormtroopers in the early 1930s, they discriminated against German conservatives rather than socialists or communists. And others cite plenty of examples where Hitler rails against communists more than America, especially during the early 1930s. Brennan, how would you respond to your critics? Well, in the international sphere, his main enemy was clearly the United States and the British Empire, more so than the Soviet Union. Not that he's not worried about the Soviet Union, but his main concern is clearly Anglo-America. Now, when we come to German domestic politics, the key thing to realize here is that he sees communism in the same way as he sees socialism, the same way as he sees trade unionism, other domestic forces, as instruments of international capitalism. In fact, these are forces which are used by international capitalism to break down national economies and render them susceptible and weaker uh, for takeover by international capitalism. So that is the hierarchy of concerns uh, in his mind. Okay, well, how then do you account for Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941? This is Operation Barbarossa. I mean, your critics would say this was part of a broader ideological campaign against Bolshevism. Well, it certainly is at one level, but it's very much a subordinate aim. I mean, the ideological uh, confrontation uh, with the Soviet Union is cranked up substantially in early 1941. Prior to that, from 39 to 41, of course, he had been effectively allied uh, with Stalin and um, the German propaganda machine had been told uh, to take it easy on him. Critically, Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, is driven not primarily by the ideological concern, but by this straightforward desire to gain territory and resources, which is directed not against the Soviet Union, but against the Anglo-Americans. In other words, we can only survive, and this has been the theme since the 1920s, we can only survive against the United States 
and the British Empire if we too have got large amounts of space just as they have. And so he targets the Soviet Union not because it's his primary ideological enemy, doesn't feature much uh, in the uh, actual military and strategic planning documents for Barbarossa, uh, but rather because it's weak. These poor people have got Bolshevism, they're afflicted, and therefore it will be easier uh, to take them over. Now, that proved not to be the case, which is, I think, the principal reason why we read history backwards hmm. and therefore attach more significance to this ideological element, an anti-Soviet element, than it really deserves. As, as an aside, and I mean, we should stress this was the moment, the Soviet resistance to the Nazi invasion, this was the moment when the upward trajectory of Hitler's Third Reich clearly turned downwards. My guest is Professor Brendan Sims. Um, now, you write about Hitler's furious obsession with uh, German emigration to America and how he, Hitler, saw America's rise as the result of an influx of German emigrants. Tell us more. Well, uh, the key, really, to his whole worldview about the weakness of Germany is his argument that Germany has been fragmented for hundreds of years. It lacks space. It cannot feed its own people. Uh, and the result of that, uh, and this is something that hasn't really been discussed by his biographers, is emigration. Uh, the departure of what are, in his view, the best and brightest elements of the German population, which go and, and this is his phrase, fertilize the British Empire, but particularly the United States. And so uh, these people are not only lost to the German Reich, but there are gains uh, to the other side. And this becomes particularly critical in his mind during the First World War, when uh, German emigrants, as he sees it, come back and defeat the German Reich. And there's a critical moment in 1918, in July 1918, which I'm the first to discover it, when he encounters American soldiers during the Second Battle of the Marne on the Western Front. And he says subsequently in the 1920s, these were uh, the children of German emigrants. And that is why we need living space in the East so we can repeat the experience of the United States in the West. We can have our own space and build up our own race. So this is very much a worldview which centers on the United States rather than on uh, the Soviet Union and, and Bolshevism. And you, you, you say that moment in war, July 1918, you say that was a seminal moment in Hitler's life and, and thus in the history of the 20th century. Yes, exactly. And it leads all the way to uh, December 1941, which is the real turning point of the war, not because the German army is bogged down before Moscow, though that's obviously very important. The reason why Hitler thinks it's important is that is the time when he decides finally to take the war uh, to the United States and declare war uh, on Roosevelt. So again, it's the United States, not the Soviet Union, uh, which is critical, even in 1941. Yes, this, this, this decision uh, by Hitler is a foolish declaration of war on America after Pearl Harbor, December 1941. He just assumed that the U.S. would concentrate its military effort in the Pacific, not Europe. Didn't he contemplate the consequences of declaring war on America? Because that, America's involvement in Europe clearly um, helped defeat Hitler. That's absolutely right. But to understand his decision, which seems completely irrational to us in retrospect, one has to remember that he, he believes himself to be already at war with the United States by December 1941. In many respects, the United States has supplied land lease. It is attacking German submarines on the high seas. And please don't get me wrong, I'm very glad that they were doing this. Mm. But from the point of view of, of Hitler, uh, Roosevelt is clearly gunning for him. And so he sees only a very narrow window in 1941, whereas the Japanese can distract the United States and the British Empire in the East and Pacific, 
then he can consolidate his position in Europe, create a, a perimeter line, if you like, within which he has access to resources and living space, and he can then see off uh, the Anglo-Americans. But it is very much a narrow window. Uh, he sees, he ha from his point of view, he has no choice. My guest is Cambridge diplomatic historian Professor Brendan Sims. He's the author of Hitler, Only the World Was Enough. It's published by Alan Lane. We're talking about the Nazi dictator who died 75 years ago on April 30. What about Hitler's hatred of the Jews? Is there any particular American link here, Brendan? Well, the link is strong, not so much that he gets his anti-Semitism from the United States, uh, although he's an admirer of Henry Ford, of course, the automobile tycoon who was himself a powerful anti-Semite, but rather because of the association he makes between Jews and international capitalism, and indeed capitalism in general, which he regards as being a particularly uh, American phenomenon. So in the uh, statement that he made, I mentioned earlier, uh, in 1919, he links uh, the Jews and the Americans being a money power, for example. So that's the connection. The connection with America and anti-Semitism goes via his hatred of, anti of, of international capitalism. And you mentioned Roosevelt's uh, hostility to Hitler and his defense of the Jews. Yes. So from Hitler's point of view, uh, Roosevelt is an agent of international jury. Roosevelt, of course, is simply reacting to the anti-Semitic policies uh, of the German regime. But given Hitler's own paranoid worldview, that simply confirms him in his opinion. Let's back back, go back a bit to the 1920s when he's in jail. He writes his autobiography, Mein Kampf. Was there any evidence of this obsession about America and capitalism in, in that autobiography? Well, there's actually quite a bit, more than one would think. But the, the key text for understanding that phobia is really the second book, the unpublished second book uh, from uh, 1928, and hundreds and probably thousands of speeches he gave and articles he wrote uh, in the 1920s, and indeed also uh, articles and speeches uh, and remarks made in the 1930s uh, and 1940s. Of course, it becomes very strong during the Second World War, as Hitler contemplates uh, the industrial might of the, of the United States. Let's bring uh, Hitler here to the present, um, because this is a very unique interpretation of Hitler, and there, as I said before, there have been more than 120,000 books on Hitler, and this one really is clearly a different one. What about something you said to the New York Times a few months ago, quote, the questions that Hitler was addressing, inequality, migration, uh, the challenge of international capitalism, they're as salient as they were when he set out to provide his peculiarly destructive and demented answers. And you go on to say, in a very alarming and upsetting way, Hitler is actually less strange today than he was 20 or 30 years ago. Tell us more. Well, I think for two reasons principally, although one always has to be very careful about making uh, these kinds of comparisons. First of all, uh, as regards demography that's and migration, that's a much more salient subject now, I think than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. And we see in the repopulation in German, they say, the Umfolkung rhetoric of, uh, of the right, this idea that our populations are being exchanged uh, and we're being downgraded racially through the export of our strongest elements uh, and the import uh, of so-called negative elements. And that's, that's straight out of uh, Hitler's playbook. But when it comes to anti-Semitism, uh, this is also very much a conspiracy theory, not just of the far right, uh, but also of the uh, extreme left. The idea that Zionist forces, that international capitalism uh, is running the world, uh, and that this is somehow an open sesame to understanding 
the globe uh, and global development. Um, that, again, uh, is pure history. And I think that 30, 40 years ago, again, international anti-Semitism, which is now so current, mm. um, I think wasn't such a feature. Yes, but given the rise of populism and indeed nationalism across Europe these days... And I should also stress you're the president of a think tank, the Project for Democratic Union. You support constitutional creation of a single European state. I mean, is that really conceivable given the widespread sense of uh, populism and nationalism that's been unleashed across Europe in recent years? Well, I understand your scepticism, and I'll probably uh, be a much worse uh, politician than, than a historian. Um, but uh, first of all, I would say, uh, and this is relates to our earlier discussion, Hitler was strongly opposed to the idea of a united Europe, pan-Europeans. Pan one of the things I, I talk about in the book, regarded as a Jewish plot. I don't actually think that Brexit is an argument against mainland European integration. If you look at what Churchill was saying uh, in the same as Zurich speech in 1946, he, he, he was very clear that the United Kingdom, British Empire, would go a different route from mainland Europe. I think that what we've seen in the coronavirus crisis, the economic crisis, uh, the migration crisis shows that it's impossible to have a national-level response in mainland Europe. And therefore, the idea of a single European state constructed on Anglo-American lines, perhaps even on the lines of the Australian Union, dare I say it, uh, is really the only solution uh, to our problem. So I'm going to keep on arguing that. Brendan Sims, he's the author of Hitler, Only the World Was Enough. It's published by Alan Lane. This is Tom Switzer on RN. Hope we can enjoy your company again next week.